For the rest of us, would you turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. I know we're in the life of David, and uh, I just want to give you a couple of verses from Genesis that will get us started along our way. Genesis chapter 49. Jacob is blessing his, his sons. Uh, he's coming to the end of his life and he's blessing his sons. And if you remember, as we were doing the series on the life of Joseph, we, we talked about um, Joseph's life and we got to this end um, point where Jacob is laying his hands on his sons and calling blessings upon them. And if you remember, he passed over Reuben because of his sins. He passed over Simeon and Levi as well. And we find in Genesis chapter 49, verse 8, this is the word of the Lord, Judah, your brothers shall praise you, and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. I'll stop there. That's where we get the lion of the tribe of Judah, that phrase about Lord Jesus. Back to verse 9, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of his people. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we uh, read these words from Jacob, uh, hundreds of years before Uh, David. They speak of David. They speak of the fact that David is going to be king over Israel, but they speak even further than that. They speak of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true lion of the tribe of Judah. So Lord, I pray that you would remind us of this great prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, this great priest, and this amazing king. Father, today as as we look at the Davidic covenant and how you made a covenant with your son, David. Help us to see that he was looking to his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So theologians look at this chapter and they say that this is one of the most important chapters. If you turn with me back to Second Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is one of the most important chapters in the whole of the Old Testament. In fact, some would say in the whole of the Bible. Now, let's remember, this is our 12th message on the life of David. And during this um, series, what you have been seeing is that this young boy was out in the shepherd's field and he was called out of that shepherd's field to stand there before Samuel. And Samuel anointed him, you remember, king. And as, as Doug preached, I believe it was that sermon, uh, we looked at that time and um, David could have been 12 or 13 years old at that time. And you remember last week we had seen that David is now 30 years old. So it's been about 18 plus years in his life that have led him to the place where he is now king over Israel. I want you to see that he ruled over Hebron and he, he won back uh, Jerusalem from the Jebusites. And he won back the central place where Jews call their homeland today. That's what he won back. 
back from the Jebusites. And then last week, we had the opportunity to see that David brought back the Ark of the Covenant, back to this worship center, back to the place where God is going to be worshipped in his land among his people. David has unified the tribes. He's brought them back to the ark, to the city. He has now allowed Jerusalem to be the place of political and royal leadership as well as the priestly line. It's pretty amazing. David is now sitting back in Second Samuel 7, and he's at a relative level of peace in his life. And he's thinking about what he wants to do for God, which is a pretty good thing to do. Look with me here at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. We'll stop there for a moment. David is now living in some type of luxury right now. If you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 5, I think Pastor Tim had preached through this one, where Hiram had brought cedar and he said that he was going to build a palace for the king. And he built this palatial palace for the king and he's sitting there on this day with his friend, incredibly, his good friend is Nathan the prophet, which is actually pretty good to think about, having somebody who is a spiritually mature person being one of your best friends. And he's sitting there and he has rest and he's looking at his own house and he's saying that I have this beautiful physical dwelling, but he thinks about the ark, which is across the town that is in a tent. And he says, something is wrong with this picture. This just doesn't make sense. I am in this beautiful palace. God's ark, which is symbolic of the presence of God, is in an old tent. Doesn't make sense to David. You'll see the word here, it says house. Now, when the king lived in his house, my version says it, this word house is going to be used 15 times in this chapter. And it's going to be a play on words. We'll see it. David is going to talk about a physical house God is going to talk about a different type of house. We'll see that when we get there. And the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies. Now, there is some debate on when this occurred. Some wonder if this is right after chapter, uh, the early part of uh, 1 Samuel, where he has fought the Philistines and fought the Jebusites, and he is in some time of peace, because if you're familiar with what's going to happen after this in 2 Samuel 8 and following, there are going to be even more attacks and more wars. So they're thinking that it may be a calm in the midst of the storm, or some would say that this actually happened after verse 12, and that we're going to have this come back, and that it's looking uh, back. I'm not sure. I think it's probably just a piece in the midst of the storm. Five has happened. I brought the ark back. I have my palace And he thinks about God. He talks to Nathan. He says, I dwell in this beautiful house, and God is dwelling in a tent. And David says, I want to do something about that. Look with me in verse 3. Nathan said to the king, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. What David wants to do is to build a home for God. That's a pretty good thing, isn't it? 
I mean, he wants to do something for God. He wants to do God, I guess, a favor, and he wants to do God something. I want to take you out of that tent, and I want to put you in a palatial place like this. Nathan gives him counsel. I think Nathan's counsel is coming from Deuteronomy chapter 12. I think David's counsel is coming from Deuteronomy 12 as well. And if you get a chance this week, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 8 through 14, God said that when you enter the land and I give you peace, then I want you to build a place for me. So as David, if you remember in our last time, we were talking about he did not consult God. He did not go into the word when he brought the Ark of the Covenant. And then he spent three months doing a review of how we need to handle this ark appropriately. I think he was also reading in Deuteronomy 12. And he remembers this and he says, now God has given me peace. Now I want to build a place for him. Nathan's probably saying, you know what, that sounds right. That's biblical. Go do whatever you want, what's in your heart. And he says here at the end of verse 3, for the Lord is with you. Eight times in this chapter alone, that phrase, for the Lord is with you, is going to be there. It is God's special presence in David's life. He, he treats David, and he acts in David, and he has a relationship with David that is unlike anything. And it's amazing that God is there with him. So David has this great desire to build a home for God. But God denies it. Look here with verse 4. But that same night, there was no delay. The word of the Lord came to Nathan. See, Nathan had given him counsel out of his own beliefs and maybe out of his reading of Scripture, but Nathan apparently had never gone to God and prayed about this. But now God speaks to Nathan that night and says, Nathan, tell my servant this. Thus says the Lord. You know that this is coming from God. Would you build me a house to dwell in? In essence, he's basically telling Nathan to tell David, don't. How do you respond when the things that you desperately want, God says no? How do you react when something that you would say is even a God-honoring, quote-unquote, thought or belief, God says no? I want you to see how David responded because unfortunately, far too often, I don't respond that way. Far too often when God says no to me, I grumble, I complain, I get confused, I get frustrated. But what David does is absolutely amazing. Well, let's see what God says here. Continuing, verse six, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Israel to this day. I'm from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all my places where I moved with all the people of Israel, I did not speak a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I've commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? What God, in essence, is saying is this. The reason why he is not going to allow this to occur is because God didn't initiate it. God didn't ask for this. God did not ask for a house. He did not need a physical dwelling. God is everywhere present. In fact, that ark is only symbolic of the presence of God, but God is everywhere present. I don't need a house, nor did I ask for a house, and I definitely don't want a house of cedar, luxury. 
what I find interesting is D.A. Carson talks about this and he says that um, in redemptive history, it's only God that takes the initiative in redemptive history. It's not coming from humanity, it's coming from God. What David seemed to want to do is to do something for God. God says, I want to do something for you, David. I want to do something in your life. And that's exactly what God does for you and for me. He's the one that comes to us and he wants to teach us. He wants to minister to us. He wants to serve us. Amazing. So we don't see here in 2 Samuel why God won't allow him to do that. If you want to take time in 1 Kings chapter 5 and 1 Chronicles 22 and 28, God gives reasons why he's not allowing David to build this temple. One of the reasons why he's not allowing David to build this temple is because David is going to be busy at fighting wars. I think this is just a pause in time. David thinks he's in relative peace, but chapter 8 through 12 is coming, and there are more battles that are going to come. You're going to be busy fighting wars. You won't have time to build my temple. I think there's a second reason. It's found in 1 Chronicles chapter 22 and 28. Because you are a warrior, David, you've got blood all over your hands, and you're not appropriate to build my temple. Those are the two reasons God gave David why he would not allow him to build that temple. But I, I ask you again, how do you respond when your dreams are shattered? How do you respond when God says no? You prayed heartily for this, and God says not now. But God does something amazing. After David's desire and God's denial, what God says is, I've got a plan for you, David, a plan that's going to blow your mind. Look verses 8 through 11. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. Now, he's once again still speaking through Nathan the prophet. Thus says the Lord, once again, the authority of host, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut down all of the enemies before you. And I make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Do you hear it? What was the repeated word? I put the stress on it. The repeated word is I. God's general plan is this, that God is the one that makes people great, not the other way around. That God is the one that took this little shepherd boy at 12 years old and made him the king over God's people. David thought that he was going to do something amazing for God. God says, I want to do something amazing for you, David. I want you to think about all the world religions today. All the world religions are primarily what? We do something for our deity. We appease the deity. Christianity is the only religion where the God of that religion did all the work for his people. And God is saying, David, I don't need you to build me a temple. I want to build you something amazing in life. There is no this for that. There is no you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. It is the fact that God doesn't need any of us. That may be shocking to you. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need your counsel. 
He doesn't need your love. He definitely doesn't need your building. He doesn't need us. Oh, but don't misunderstand it. God loves you. He loves you not because he needs you. He loves you because it's just part of his character. He cares about you, not because he desperately has some lacking need in his life. He cares about you because he cares about you, because that's who he is. He loves you. He cares for you. He desires a relationship with you, and he has brought his son into our lives so that you can have a personal relationship with him. This God doesn't need you, but he loves you. David, I don't need a building. I want to show you that I'm going to pour my love and my grace upon you. Everything that I have in my life, even the breath that I have in my body, has been given to me by God and given to you by God. You are so amazingly blessed. He says, David, I took you from the rubble and I brought you to this palace. Don't ever forget it. I think David also is being told by God that God... God wants to make his people secure. He has brought David into these people's lives so that he can make his people secure. And he is doing this. You see this in verse, 12, uh, verse 10. I will plant them so that they will dwell in their own place and be not disturbed anymore. And violent men who afflict them no more as formerly. From that time, I appoint judges over my people Israel and I will give them rest from all their enemies that God has given David this place so that he can protect Israel, God's people. What an amazing gift that God has given. This general and very wonderful plan that God is at work in David's life, but then it gets even more specific. Verse 11 and 17. God has not only a general plan for the nation of Israel, he has a specific plan for David. Listen to this. Moreover, declares the Lord that now, declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father and he shall be my son when he commits iniquity, I will discipline with a rod, with the stripes of the Son of Men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all these visions, Nathan had spoken to David. Not only did God have a general plan for the nation of Israel, he had a specific plan for David. David wanted to build God a dwelling, a house, a physical house. But God wants to build David a dynasty. And as David is thinking on the physical, God is thinking on the eternal. David is thinking about cedar, and God is thinking about spiritual. He wants to bring of the family of God together through David's line, David, your son will reign forever and ever. Amazing. It's one of the first times we see in Scripture this idea in verse 12 of a father, that God is going to be like a father to us, the sonship language. I will be like a father, and he will be like a son. 
today, when we think about fathers and sons, it's not the same as they did in the ancient world. In the ancient world, when they talked about father and son, it was about your identity, who you are. I wonder how many people here actually are working in the same trade that their father worked in. Probably very few of us. Back in ancient times, you followed in your father's footsteps. It was who you are. It was your identity. You remember when Jesus, Jesus' father was a carpenter, right? His earthly father. What did they call Jesus? Jesus was called the, a carpenter. He followed in his father's footsteps. What God says is this, I want you to have such an identity that you're so connected to me that I will be like a father and you will be like a son to me. David, beautiful words of not just a specific plan of a dynasty, but a sonship, a relationship. But now David has a a concern. The king before him was who? Saul. How long did Saul's dynasty last? One ruler, Saul. What happened that caused Saul to lose his dynasty, if you want to call it that? He sinned. He didn't follow God. David is probably thinking in his mind, you're going to build me a dynasty, but what happens if my son sins? And in fact, he says in verse 14, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes. David's rulers after him are going to sin. His sons are going to sin. In fact, Solomon's going to do some horrendous sins. But the thing that held him fast was that the steadfast love of the Lord would never leave him, ever. God's promise here is that I will give you a house, I will give you offspring, I will give you a throne, I will give you kingdom, I will give this to you, I will give you my love, my steadfast love, it will not depart from you. Your kingdom will last forever. God's loyal love, first promised here, is now granted to you. So let's be honest. Did somebody from David's line stay on the throne from the time of David till today? No. They didn't. You know, amazingly, some of the dynasties in the northern kingdom had about 100 years. Um, There were other dynasties that made it up to 250 years. David's dynasty seems to have come to an end after 400 years, long time. But it seems to have come to an end. But it didn't. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Hold your finger there, turn with me to chapter 1 of Matthew the very first verse of the very first book of the New Testament, what does it say? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of who? Jesus Christ. Who is he? The son of David. That Jesus Christ, even though there was a gap in time and it seemed like the rule of David and the dynasty of David had ended, what God had done was that he continued the line because someone through David's line, the lion of the tribe of what? Judah Judah reigns and rules in his life. God's promises always stand. 
God doesn't fail us yet. God never fails us. He never will. So how do you respond when God doesn't give you what you want? Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Let's see if we can pull out some ways that David responded that I think we need to respond as well. Verse 18. So David had this desire. This desire has been denied by God. God has given a general plan of what he's going to do for his people. But then he does a specific plan that David, through your line, I will give the Messiah, a king who will live forever. But you're not going to build my temple. How did he respond? I think he responded humbly because he knew he was privileged and he responded with gratitude. Here are the three things. Humbled, privileged, grateful. Then David went in and sat before the Lord. Stop there for a moment. When was the last time you actually just sat down before the Lord? When was the last time you just sat down and allowed God to speak to you and that you spoke to him? David just, after hearing all of this, he went in and he sat down before the Lord. Those words blow me away. And he said this, who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is the instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Verse 20, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant. O Lord, God, because of your promise and because of according to your heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make me a servant know it. You hear David. David's response is humbled. He says, who am I? I think of the Casting Crowns song. You know, you know that song, who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my heart? Who am I? That's what David is saying. Who am I, oh God? I, it, it's just this response of overwhelming grace and gratitude. It's a faith-filled response. He says, God, I remember what you've said to me, and I'm overwhelmed. David responded because he was humbled. David responded because he felt such amazing privileges in his life, but David responded gratefully. Why? I think he responded because of three or four things. And I want you to keep these in mind because I think we need to remind ourselves of this. When your dreams are dashed, you need to display faith in God by reminding yourself first of God's humble grace, God's amazing sovereign grace. David sat there and looked and he thought about the fact that God is sovereign. How many times in here did he use the word servant? If you read the rest of David's prayer, he used the word, I am your servant, ten times. Why? He's reminding himself that I am your slave and you're the sovereign one. I may be, quote unquote, king over Israel, but I'm a lower king. You're the ultimate king. He calls himself a servant of God, but then he uses a phrase, I don't know if you heard it, O Lord God, it means sovereign God, Yahweh He says that seven times. He is reminding himself that God is above him and that I am just merely a servant. He is humbled by the sovereign grace of God. But what is grace? 
Grace is unmerited favor. Unmerited in the fact that I don't deserve it. That's why he could say, who am I? He knows that he was just a little boy on a shepherd's field, and he was called to be king of Israel. And he knows that he's been given amazing favor in his life, that everything that he has has been given to him because of the grace of God and the wonder of God. So, so how did David display such grace, you know, great faith? He was humbled by God's sovereign grace. He, he saw himself as a servant. You know, the one thing that his wife, Michal, hated about him was he humbled himself. He humbled himself before the people. David continued to humble himself before God. But I think there's a second reason why David was able to display such grace. Not only was he humbled by God's sovereign grace in his life, he was submissive to God's plan in his life. Look with me in verse 20. It says, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, God, oh Lord God. God has a plan. God says, no, you're not going to build it. And God said, no. And David said, I'm okay with that. I submit, I, I submit myself to your plan, God. Your plan may not be my plan, but your plan is always better than my plan. I don't think most of us think that. We think that we're counseling God. God says, I want to counsel you. David sees that all of the initiative is happening because of God's sovereign word, God's authoritative word, his independent word, his creative word, his sufficient word, his effective word was given to David, and David trusted in that. He says, I trust your plan. David was able to keep focus because he trusted and he was humbled by God's sovereign grace. David was able to trust in God because he submitted to the plan and purpose of God. But there's a third thing I think he did. David focused on the person of God, not himself. I think we fail far too often in our lives because we focus on ourselves, not the person of God. Because if it were me and I said, well, I read Deuteronomy 12, I am supposed to build, uh, you know, a building is supposed to be made for God. I can't believe God is keeping me from doing this. That's probably the way we would gripe and complain. But God, David had none of that. David says, God, you're gracious. God, you have a providential plan. God, I submit to it and I am focusing on you. Over and over in this, you will see that David is focusing on the God who is and the God who was and the God who will ever be. Look with me in verse 22. He says, he says therefore, you are great, O Lord, for there's none like you. There's no God beside you, according to all you have heard with our ear, we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to be redeemed his people, making himself a name and doing them great and awesome things by driving out your people and who redeemed yourself from Egypt, a nation of the gods. Verse 24, and you establish yourself for your people to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. David was able to look back. David looked back at the history of his people, of God's people, and he says, you took this small tribe who became an amazing nation, who was in slavery in Egypt, you took them out of Egypt, you took them through the desert, and you've planted them in your promised land today, God. David was able to look back. He was able to focus and stay faithful and humble and privileged and grateful because he looked back at what God had done. 
How many times do you sit down and think about what God has done in your life? How many times do you look back and remind yourself? I I love keeping a journal and just writing in there things that God has done for me because I tend to forget. David rehearsed those things. He reviewed those things. He remembered those things that God had done for him. Step number one in his process, he looked back at what God has done. The next step in his process of understanding God and focusing on God was he looked around. I bet you he took a look at the palace. He thought about the caves. How many times was he in a cave? How many times was he running for his life? He's thinking about the peace that he has right now. He saw the ark. The ark is back in home. We are in our city of Jerusalem. He's looking around and he's focusing on the person of God. He looks back and he feels the focus focus on the person of God. He looks around and he's focusing on the person of God. And then he looks forward. Verse 26, 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you've spoken concerning your servant and concerning your house and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. The house of the servant David will be established forever. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made the revelation to your servant that I will build him a house. David is looking back. David is looking around, but David is looking forward. He is thinking about the fact that God is truthful and he will fulfill it. David stayed humble. He he understood his privilege. He was grateful, first, because he understood the sovereignty of God. Second, because he was submitted to the plan and purpose of God. Third, he focused on the person of God by looking back, looking around, and then looking forward. And then finally, David did one other thing. He tied his prayer to the promise of God. He tied his prayer to the promise of God. Look verse 27 and following. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, and I will build you a house. And therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. You promised to do this good thing for your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. With your blessing shall be on your house of your servant. Be blessed forever. What David did was essentially two things if you want to boil this whole thing down. He realized when God said no, he realized God's plans was better. When God says no in your life, do you realize that God's plan is always going to be better than yours? And when God said no, he was humbled. He recognized his privilege and he was grateful. So the historical line of David sinned. (laughs) If you know Solomon, he sinned royally. If you know the kings that follow, come to walk through the Bible, they sin royally. And David's dynasty appears to come to an end, but we've already seen in Matthew chapter 1, his dynasty did not come to an end, ultimately. 
because it came in the person of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever find it in your lives when it seems as though God's promises have failed? You ever find that? There's this passage in Habakkuk. Habakkuk is this small book in the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there. Habakkuk was written to the nation of Israel, and they were going to be under Assyrian attack. And Habakkuk just couldn't understand, God, I don't understand. Why are you going to use Assyria to attack your people? Assyria is this wicked nation. And it seems as though all of the promises that God had for his people are failing. But out of that book, we have this wonderful verse. It says, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. That the promise still stands. Great is his faithfulness. And at the end of Habakkuk chapter 3, it says this, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, or produce of the olives fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off for the fold, and there be no herd in the stall, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like deer. He makes me tread on high places. I want you to remember that God's promises, even when it doesn't seem like they work, they always do. God does not fail. This Davidic promise looked to the God that Jesus was going to reign totally. You know what the last verse of Matthew chapter 28 is? All authority has been given to who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Go into the world and preach the gospel. So he is the king from the beginning. He's the king for the end. Jesus' reign is total. Jesus' reign is perfect. He, unlike David's lineage, who are sinful and corrupt, David is going to be a righteous king. I mean, Jesus is going to be a righteous king. David's lineage is going to be unjust at times. Jesus Christ is going to be the just king of kings and the Lord of lords. David's lineage seemed to come to an end, but Jesus Christ's rule never will. So I end with this. What made David different than Solomon? I mean, Solomon, oh my, Saul is what I'm looking for. Made different, different, oh. What made David different than Saul? He humbled himself. He understood his privileges. He was grateful. He trusted in God. Faith is not just believing facts. Faith is turning those facts and leaning heavily on the one who makes those facts. That God has given you in the person of work of Christ, his son. God has said, I promise to do this thing for you. Do you trust him today? Saul didn't. When the word of the Lord came to Saul, Saul rejected. When the word of the Lord came to David, David said, I submit to your sovereign grace. I submit to your plan. I focus on you as a person. I look backward to what you've done. I look at what you've done for me today. I look forward to what you're going to do. And I turn this all into a prayer to you. Will you do the same today? Lord, we thank you and praise you. Your promise still stands because it never will stop standing. 
Lord, it was out of this beautiful passage that you told David no, but his response was God-honoring. He wanted to build you a dwelling. You want to build him a dynasty. That dynasty found its fulfillment in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I, I think about David probably bringing that ark that had the mercy seat, knowing his own sin, needing mercy. He, he thought of your grace. He thought of the fact that you took him from nothing and made him everything. Father, remind us of the same. Remind us it's your grace that takes us and rescues us from our sin. Remind us it's your grace that sustains us in this day. And remind us it's your grace that will take us to eternity in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.